Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. And uh, gosh, I could sing with that team all day long. That was so wonderful. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Let's jump right in. Going to start a new message series entitled Supernatural Unity. Let's talk about unity. There was uh, a man who was touring uh, a, a prison facility for the criminally insane. These were all the most dangerous and most mentally unbalanced men uh, in, in the country held in one, uh, one facility, uh, an asylum for the criminally insane. On the tour, uh, the guy was uh, just going from cell block to cell block, and there was one particularly large cell block with over 100 men, and there were full-time three guards, three guards guarding, watching over uh, over 100 dangerously insane men, right? And so the man was curious, and so he walked up to one of the guards and said, are, are you comfortable with this situation? And the guard said, what do you mean? He said, well, there are over 100 criminally insane men and only three of you guarding. You don't worry that they might unite and somehow overpower you and, and take over the prison? And the guard looked back at him with the straightest face and just said, lunatics don't unite. Isn't that really Interesting. Lunatics don't unite. I guess the more mentally unbalanced you are, the least likely you are to, to be able to connect and unite with other people. I just think that's interesting because in the body of Christ, in the church, unity is supposed to be something that we share perfectly. Unity is supposed to be absolutely one of the hallmarks or the leading characteristics of all of us who belong to Christ. Unity is absolutely essential to the body of Christ. Now, I know that a lot of us are church people and we think that certain things are really, really important, but I want you to understand that in Jesus' mind, nothing matters as much as unity. Not nice buildings, not big budgets, not having your service on Facebook, not having music that you like. I mean, none of that. What matters is unity. Jesus wants us all to be one. If you doubt me, in Jesus' dying prayer in John chapter 17, verse 23, the last night of his life, Jesus is talking to his Father in prayer, and he's praying for us. And what he asks for is this. He prays, may they experience such, say the words, perfect unity. Now, we don't get perfect anything. Not down here. And if you give us something perfect, we will mess it up. Because we don't do perfection, but Jesus does perfection. And I think it's amazing that he expects us to have perfect unity. That, by the way, is why the sermon series is entitled Supernatural Unity. Because this is not natural. This can't be in our power. This wouldn't happen outside of direct intervention and power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus prays, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. I think it's amazing that for Jesus, the, the driving motivation of our unity is not just so that we can have an, a, a nice, friendly church. That's not the point. The point is when we experience perfect unity, then the world's going to know that Jesus was sent from God and that God loves him like he loves Jesus. I mean, you understand that Jesus considers the whole mission of the church hanging on this one thing, our unity. It's our unity that will show the world that God is love. Because honestly, if we can't love each other, I mean, we say that God loves us and we love everybody, but then if it turns out we don't love each other, then they're not going to listen to a thing we say. 
It is our unity, our perfect unity, which will show the world that the church's gospel and mission is true. So that's why I want us to take several weeks and talk about supernatural unity because it matters. Because honestly, the life, the mission, the purpose, the future of this church, everything depends upon our unity. So Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll come today. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. In the middle of this passage is this amazing, they call it a hymn. Some scholars think that literally this may have been an ancient hymn from the early church, the part about Jesus. It's obviously different from everything else Paul is writing, so they think it was a hymn. Uh, But pay attention to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a servant and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I'll be proud that I didn't run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice and I will share your joy. Unity. So... uh, a while back, Casey and I uh, were about to leave for vacation on a Sunday, but not leaving till later. So we had a Sunday morning to go visit another church, which I love. Y'all probably know, I don't, get, I don't get Sundays off. And so the opportunity to, especially here in Bowling Green, to go visit a Bowling Green church, which is what I did. Um, gosh, most of the pastors in town, I've, you know, we've been pastor brothers now for years, and I love these guys. I never get to hear them preach uh, so we picked a church and went to Bowling Green to church. It was, it was really terrific. 
They did that thing which we just did, which everybody did before COVID, but people aren't doing as much anymore. That's the whole, hey, stand up, shake hands, and greet all those around you, you know. So that's what they did. And, and we were guests. It's usually not a lot of fun to be the you know, guest in the room when that's going on. Uh, but anyway, I don't mind. I'm, I'm kind of an extrovert. And uh, I've been in the community for all my life, so I know people everywhere, and it's just not a big deal to me. But that's what we were doing. Everybody just shaking hands and welcoming everybody to church and exchanging names, and all that was good. But while we were doing that, this older gentleman from the front pew looked around, and he saw me and Casey. And and I knew him. I I actually knew who he was. And I thought maybe he recognized me, because he made a beeline to come to us. But it turns out he did not recognize me. He did not know who I was. That's not why he came to me. This man came to me and and like took my hand like he's going to shake it. And and he got my hand. Then he said, I just want you to know that there's a group of us here at this church and we don't like half of what's going on here on Sunday. You know, welcome to you too. I mean, what? That's what he said. Like he came across the room to come to me just to make sure that I know that there's a whole group of them that don't like anything. You know, what? It's almost like he made that little trip just to boast of disunity. You know what I'm saying? Um, now, I, I do know that man. I don't know him well, and he obviously didn't recognize me, but I, I'm not really being judgmental of him. I, I get it. Church is hard because there's people in it, you know? And, and people are difficult, and there's just no way to like everything no matter where you go, and there's no way, you know, to uh, always agree with everything everybody does and says. I mean, I, I get all of that, and so I understand how he got, you know, sideways with, with this church. I, I understand all of that because I know that, I know that people can be that way. And I know, having been the pastor of Woodburn here for 26 years, I know that we can be that way. I also know that we must not be that way. Do you understand? We must not be that way. And this is exactly what Paul is trying to preach. To understand, Philippians, it's a church at Philippi. This is a real church, and they are that way. It wouldn't really, you know, make sense for Paul to have to say all this if he thought they knew all this. They need this. This is not a unified church. I mean, if you read the, the letter to the Philippians in chapter 4, Paul's going to call out two ladies by name and say, listen, girls, y'all going to have to agree. I mean, you know, he has to call them out. They've got all kinds of problems and, and division. And so the Philippian church is sort of like most churches, all churches. We really struggle with unity, and yet unity is essential. Paul is saying, I need you to stand together. I need you to fight together. I need you to have one mind and, and one purpose. And to bring all of that home, this is where Paul gives us this amazing hymn, this amazing uh, doxology, this amazing glory, uh, glorious description of what Christ has done. Not just what Christ has done, but notice what he says. I want you to have one mind, one purpose. I want you to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. That's verse five. You got to have Jesus's attitude. Now we're talking about the way Jesus thinks, but we know how Jesus thinks because of what Jesus has done, what Jesus did. 
And so this amazing passage here tells us what Jesus has done. It reveals the way Jesus thinks. And Paul's point is, this is how you have to think. Not like this is how you want to think if you really want to, you know, be something extraordinary in the Christian life. No, this is the Christian life. This is what it looks like. It looks like Jesus. So what did Jesus do? It's amazing. And this is the key to unity. You with me? Verse 6. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. That's amazing. He was God. He is God. The, The point is, Jesus didn't become God. He wasn't born in Bethlehem and then lived a good life and somehow became something that he wasn't. He was always God, God in the flesh. But before he was God in the flesh, understand, he was God in all eternity. He was God. He was with God. He was God. He wasn't like an assistant God. He was God. Jesus was God. Equal with God in every way. That means he has all of God's sovereignty, is all of God's power. Jesus was God. Equal with God. All of God's authority, all of God's power, Jesus is God. So what do you do with that? What do you, I mean, I mean, honestly, I'm not saying y'all want to be God, but a lot of us in our little bitty lives, we sure want to be God. You know, we like for people to notice us. We like to be at the center of things. We like for people to honor us and appreciate us. We like it when everything goes our way. If possible, we like to control things. A lot of us love to be in control. We love authority. We like it when people do what we say. I mean, honestly, Jesus is living our dream. He was God. He was in the highest position, the highest place, with all of the prerogatives and all of the privileges and all of the position that comes from being equal with God. However, Jesus did not consider all of that, you know, equality with God, all of that sovereignty and all of that authority, and and he didn't consider that something that you just got to hang on to. He lays it down. That's amazing. He lays it down. This is your example. The scripture is telling you that this is how you got to learn to think. So if you find yourself in a position of power or control, if you find yourself in a position of privilege, what do you do with that? Do you just use it to add to your privilege? Because honestly, that's sort of our lives. We like upward mobility. You know, we like a starter home that eventually turns into allowing us to buy a larger home. We like to move up. At at your workplace, you you intend to advance. You want to be promoted. Nobody goes to to a job and thinks, you know, I can't, I'm going to work my way all all the way to the bottom of this place. No, you're working up. You always want to go up. You you want a promotion where you go from your little cubicle to to a larger office, to an office, you know, with a window. You like to keep moving up. You want your salary to grow. I mean, we like everything to add to our privilege, everything to add to our position, everything that adds to our power. We like upward mobility. But notice that we're supposed to have the attitude that Christ has. And if you pay attention, this is downward mobility. Jesus started at the highest place, equality with God, and yet he realizes, you know, I don't have to hold on to this. There's something that mattered more to Jesus than equality with God. 
Do you see that? So understand, Jesus totally surrenders all of his divine privileges and prerogatives, and this is the way you're supposed to think. Not how do I get more for myself? How do I get more people to pay attention to me? How do I get everything to go the way I like it? How do I get the church to revolve around me? No, no, no. Jesus surrenders all of that thinking. Totally surrenders all of his divine privileges and prerogatives. Number two, Jesus is all powerful, but he doesn't exercise all his power. Do you see that? Because he could, and most of us would, but that is not the mind of Jesus. And if you're going to follow Jesus, that can't be the way you think either. You don't use power to control people. That's not at all what Jesus does. In the Gospel of John, the Scripture says that Jesus knows that God has placed all things into his hands. Okay, so God has placed all power, all authority, everything belongs to Jesus. At that moment, as as, as a human being, a man on earth, Jesus is the most powerful man that's ever walked the earth. He's God in the flesh, right? And he knows that God's placed everything into his hands, and he knows that his time has come. So at that moment, Jesus knows he's the most important man that ever lived, certainly the most important man in that room. So what does he do? What does he do when he realizes he has all the privilege, all the position, all the power? What does he do? Gospel John says he reaches and he grabs a towel, and he wraps a towel around himself. It's a basin of water, and he kneels down, and he washes his disciples' feet. What do you do when you realize you're the most powerful person in the room? Well, you lay that down for the sake of serving others. That's what Jesus does. Notice that downward mobility. He starts in this highest place, and, and, and you can literally, you can draw this entire passage here. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. You see, he doesn't just give up his divine privileges. He becomes human. And he doesn't just become human. He becomes a servant. And he doesn't just serve to a point, he serves to the point of death. And he doesn't just die an ordinary death, he dies a death on a cross. He dies a criminal's death. Do you understand? He has gone down as low as you can go, from the highest position to the lowest position. And that's the mind of Christ, and that's the mind, that's the attitude that's also supposed to characterize you and me. Uh, Understand, the sovereign Christ doesn't aim to control us with his might. This is the amazing thing about the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over his sovereignty. And so he has this incredible freedom, Christ, this incredible freedom to lay down his sovereignty. The sovereign Christ doesn't aim to control us with his might. Why does he do this? Why does he lay aside all of his equality with God, his privileges, his sovereignty? Why does he lay all that down? He does it for the sake of saving us. He doesn't want to control us with his might, but he wants to save us with his love. This is the attitude of Christ, and this is supposed to be your attitude. And this, my friends, is the key to unity. We have to think like Christ. We have to live like Christ. We have to act like Jesus. So to move into that, Paul begins in verse 1 with a, in the New Living Translation, it's a series of rhetorical questions. Really interesting. 
A rhetorical question is a question that I ask not because I want to find out the answer to it. It's because we know the answer. It's rhetorical. So when, when Paul asks these questions in verses 1 and 2, it, it, he's talking to believers, and so we know the answer to all the questions is yes. It's always yes, and that's the point. Paul's trying to connect them to this truth in order to lead them to a deeper truth, right? So he starts out talking to believers. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Yes. I mean, yes, of course there is. It's an obvious answer, yes. If you belong to Christ, then that is the very core of who you are. It's not part of who you are. Christ is everything to you. If you belong to Christ, then that is the very center of your identity. Anything else that anybody can say about you is not as important as the fact that you belong to Christ. It doesn't matter where you were born. What matters is that you've been born again. You belong to Christ. It doesn't matter anything about your politics. It doesn't matter about your socioeconomic. None of this matters. Nothing. If you belong to Christ, that's the most important thing to be said for you. And so when Paul says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Belonging to Christ is everything about who I am. Any comfort from his love. Of course. Yes. Jesus' love has changed everything about my life. The fact that he loves me has totally rewritten my entire life on earth and my eternity. His love changes everything. And the fact that he loves me means I don't have to go out into the world trying to get other people to love me. I'm already loved with an everlasting love. And nothing I can do can make him love me more, and nothing I can do can make him love me less. He loves me. And that love he puts in me flows through me so that I now have this love that belongs to him. I have that available in my heart to love the world. I can love because I'm loved. So, so you're asking me if there's comfort from his love? Are you kidding me? Yeah, of course. Any fellowship together in the spirit? Yes. Yes. I'm not kidding. I love this worship team today. And then I realized that, like, we got Reform Fellowship, you know, and BCM and CSF and any other letters, I mean, other letters, WBC. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I think I've met most of those students, but I don't, I don't know everything about all of them. But I'm telling you, when we start singing about Jesus together, man, I'm telling you, we, we are, we're the same, you know? We're the same. It, it, it's the fellowship that comes in the Spirit. Now, I'm older than they are, you know, and they sing better and they play instruments and all of that. I mean, a lot of things that would make us different. And the longer we talk, the more differences we could discover. But see, the minute they begin to worship him, I see the spirit moving in them, and I feel the spirit moving in me. And at that point, if that spirit is in you that is in me, then I'm telling you, you and I are the same. That spirit brings us together. That's the fellowship of the spirit. And there's not anything in the world that you could then bring up that would, that would cause us to divide, to separate. Jesus' spirit brings us together. It's, it's a supernatural unity. And that's what we experience. Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Yes. Jesus makes our hearts to be that way. I mean, there is a world full of hard-hearted people out there, but not Jesus' followers, not the people after Jesus. Jesus gives us a new heart. He takes out that heart of stone, as it says in the Old Testament. He gives us a heart of flesh. It's a soft heart. It's a soft heart. 
which means it's easy now for me to love people. It's easy for you and I to love one another. There's compassion. Compassion means to feel with, which means, man, if you're experiencing joy, I can share that with you. I don't have to be jealous of, of what happens to you that's good. I can celebrate that with you. And if your heart breaks, my heart's going to break with you. It's compassion. We, we feel with one another. I mean, this is what unity is. And all of these things are the things that come from Christ. That's why they're rhetorical questions. Unless they're not. What I'm saying is, we go through that list of questions, and I'm saying if you're a believer, it's, it's supposed to be an obvious yes, of course, yes, but, but it's not yes for everybody. Can we just agree to that? I mean, right from the beginning, is there encouragement from belonging to Christ? Some of you don't think anything about that. The fact that you belong to Jesus or don't belong to Jesus, that's not keeping you awake at night and it's not, you know, exciting you later. That's really not something that, that crosses your mind. It's not central to your identity at all. And I'm just saying to you that that's probably a bad spiritual sign. This is just a part of belonging to Christ. Any comfort from his love. If Jesus' love hasn't made any difference in your life whatsoever, that's probably a bad sign for you. Any fellowship together in the spirit. I mean, now, now we're talking about you know, believers together, and some of us really don't do fellowship well. I mean, probably some of you in this room are thinking, you know, this is really in my church. I don't care what y'all do up in here. You know, I, I attend here on occasion, but, you know, I don't want to be, you know, unified, you know, and I understand that, but I'm just saying that's probably not a good sign for your spiritual life that you prefer to live out of fellowship with the people of God. That that's not a good sign for you. Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Well, some of us, our hearts are very, very hard, not compassionate at all. Some of us, the only strong feelings we have are for ourselves and for a few select people that mean something to us, but the rest of the world, you know, we don't have a soft heart for everybody. We just don't have that much love to go around. And I'm telling you, that's not a good sign for you. It's, drop down to verse 13 with me. It's an interesting passage. It's also, a, it's encouraging, it's exciting, it's beautiful. It's also terrifying when you read it. For God is working, verse 13, God is working in you, giving you two things. God gives you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So when God is working in you, he gives you two things. The first thing he gives you is what? Desire. A desire to do what pleases him. That's the first thing he gives you. When God is at work in you, you have a desire to do what pleases him. Now, I'm not perfect in pleasing God, and you're not either. But I really want to. That is my desire. Every single day, I want to do what pleases God. And that is the sign of God at work in me. God gives you the desire, and then he gives you the power. My suggestion to you is that if you don't have any desire, if, if you're not disturbed by a lack of, of, of belonging, or if, or if the unity of the church is something that doesn't matter to you at all, or if you're even a person who can uh, boast in disunity or sow discord or backbite or gossip, if you're that person, understand, this isn't a good sign for you. I'd say it this way. If you have no desire to do what pleases God, then God is not at work in you. Okay, I know that sounds harsh, but I'm preaching the Bible. For, for God is working in you, giving you the desire. If you have no desire, then God is not at work in you. And if God is not at work in you, God is not in you. 
I'm saying it's that serious. Our unity is, as believers is that serious. And if you don't really have that desire, if you don't have that burning desire to belong to Jesus, and because you belong to Jesus, then to belong to everyone else who belongs to Jesus, then I don't think you can be connected to the Holy Spirit. And if you're not connected to the Spirit, I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian. You know, understand, Paul is just going through basic rhetorical questions. This is what it means to belong to Jesus. If, if this doesn't describe your life, your heart, your desires, are, are you even a believer? Because we have to start there. The supernatural unity is experienced in the body of Christ. And so we have to make sure that everybody you know, belongs to Jesus, that, that everybody truly belongs to Christ. And, and if you're just a church goer, but you're actually not a believer, then you're never going to know the fellowship of the Spirit. You're never going to know, you know the encouragement that comes from belonging to Christ. You're never going to know the supernatural unity that God's children feel. You've got to belong to him. You have to be a believer. You have to be a Christian. And Paul goes on, verse 3. I'll try to hurry up. Verse 3. Paul says, don't be selfish. <laughs> okay, y'all know any selfish people? Do y'all know any selfish people? I, don't, I know it's the Bible, and I, I'm not going to argue with God's word, and I'm not going to argue with Paul, but i got thoughts here. Um, because something just tells me that it is not going to be enough to tell selfish people not to be selfish. Do you know selfish people? Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. I, th- I think if you, if you translate carefully what Paul is saying, I, I don't think the implication is that others are literally better than you. I think the idea is that in every situation, you just consider other people more important. In other words, it's more important that they get what they need than that you get what you need. You know? Don't be selfish. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. See, I, I think the point here is that the true obstacle to unity is not difference. Our problem is not that we're all so different, that some of us live in Simpson County and some of us live in Warren County. Our problem is not generational, that that we have older people and younger people in the same. That's not our problem. Our problem is not music, that some people like it loud and some people like it soft, you know, know, so they can sleep. (laughs) That's not... That's not our problem. It's not, it's not that some people are public school and some people homeschool. You know, any of these things that you can mention that, that are different about us are, are, are just what they are. Politically, we'll never agree. You know, there's so many things that we're never going to you know, reach agreement on. We, we don't agree on politics. We don't agree on, you know, best restaurants in Bowling Green, best pizza. You know, I can tell you where it is, but you won't agree. I mean, you know. Um, fashion, we don't agree on fashion. David Stewart, God bless him in our church. I love David. David loves me, but David hates these shoes. Like he tells me, he tells me he hates these shoes because he says they look dirty. Now I understand y'all don't, don't judge him. He doesn't know fashion, but, um, yeah, he says they look dirty and he says in his whole life, y'all are judging my boots now, uh, up here. Yeah. He just says they look dirty. And in his whole life, he was just taught that if you wear b- boots that look dirty, that just, you know, you, you don't want to go out in the world with boots that look like, you know, they've been drugged behind a truck. Um, and, and I don't know if y'all agree with him or not, but if you do, you just don't know fashion, you know, fashion y'all. It's, 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 you don't know what I mean though? 
We're not all going to agree on, on stuff, and, and, and the differences aren't our problem. All through the New Testament, when you talk about the unity in the body of Christ, it's that idea, it's a body, and we're all members of a body, like arms, legs, feet, fingers. I mean, it's the idea that we look different, and, and everything about us can be completely different. Our, our function is different, you understand? But, but we can still experience a kind of unity. It's a supernatural unity that doesn't depend upon us all thinking the same. Or believe in this, it doesn't all depend upon us you know, sharing all the same opinions. That, that's not the point. So difference is not our problem. The true obstacle to unity is not difference, it is self-centeredness. It's, it's selfishness. It's selfishness. It's not because we're different, it's because we're selfish. And I would say we're all a little bit selfish. And the degree to which we're selfish, it, it, it absolutely contradicts the gospel and it interrupts the, our ability to enjoy the perfect unity that Christ wanted us to have. It, it, it's our selfishness. Well, Pastor Tim, I don't know who you're talking to, but I don't have a selfish bone in my body. That's what, that's somebody's thinking that, right? You're talking, you don't know me. I'm not, I don't have a selfish bone in my body. Okay, let's play a game with you. Let's say I whipped up my phone right now, and I got everybody to scrunch in in the middle, and I took a group picture right here, all of us together, all 240 of us, you know, right here. Take a group picture, right? And I say, hey, y'all, check out Facebook later. I'm going to post this picture on Facebook. Y'all can all go see it, all right? So when you get home this afternoon and you go look at the picture, who's the first person you look for? Like, it's 240 people. It's a group picture, but when you're going to Facebook... It's a you picture. It's a picture of you, and you're thinking, he took three. He better not have picked one where I look dumb. I mean, it's, it is, it's about you. And we're, I'm, I'd be the same way. You know, if it's a group picture, I want to see me. I, I want to see how I look. And if I look dumb, that's a horrible picture. It doesn't matter if y'all look great. I, I mean, you know, it's a group picture, but the first person you look for isn't going to be Ian Brown, you know. It's going to be you. You want to see you. We're all a little bit self-focused and self-centered, and this is our problem. This is what keeps us from thinking more like Jesus. It's what keeps us from living like Jesus. It's what keeps us from unity. It's selfishness. It's self-centeredness. So how do you get selfish people to stop being selfish? That's the question. I don't think you can do it just by telling them not to, don't be selfish. I, I don't think that helps us. I think we need something more. And Paul gives us something more. If the problem is self-focused, if we're a little bit too self-focused, then understand what Paul says. Verse 4, don't look. Don't look only for your own interests. In other words, don't just focus on yourself and what you like. Don't just focus on yourself and what you need. It's not about you. You've got to shift your focus. Understand, you've got to learn to focus on what you can do for others, not on what others can do for you. I know, it sounds basic, but most of us don't live this way. And especially sometimes at church, we really start thinking about making sure that, that, that everybody knows our opinion and we want people to follow us and agree with us and take care of us. And I'm telling you, that's not the key to unity that's going to hurt us and it's not the mind of Christ. Focus on what you can do for others, not on what others can do for you. Pastor Tim, I missed my small group for three weeks and not a one of them called me. They did not call me. I didn't get a phone call. Okay, I'm sorry because honestly, I want our small groups to work really well at taking care of people. But you know what? And, and y'all forgive me if this sounds harsh. Um, I've never really heard a complaint like that from anybody who makes calls. 
You know what I mean? Like when somebody says, nobody called me. You know, I just want to say, well, when other people miss, do you call them? You know, you know what I'm saying? You know, because it's really not about like you join a small group to see, you know, if you can get everybody to start, you know, you know kind of, you know, pampering you. No, this is your opportunity to love other people more than you love yourself. Is that not the golden rule? You know, is that just not the basic Christian life? Everything is just about your getting over yourself so that you can learn to love other people more than you love you. And in the church, we focus on what we can do for others. You you walk in this place with your eye toward trying to make somebody else's day better. You know, so you, you walk in the church and somebody's sitting in your pew and you, you huff, you know, go get in the car and drive home. Somebody's in your pew. Are you kidding me? You don't have a pew. You don't have a pew. And while we're on this topic, if you ever look back there and somebody doesn't have a seat, get your rear end up and give them your seat. What is wrong with you? Well, Pastor Jim, I got here early to get my seat. I got here early. You know, let them get here early, you know. Well, getting here early hasn't made you one bit more like Jesus. Could you try? I mean, could you try? Give your seat up. I mean, this is the mind of Christ. This is how Christ would do. But it's not really the way we like to do. And I'm telling you, this is what Paul is saying. This unity begins when we forget ourselves. Get over yourself. Stop being selfish. Stop focusing on yourself, what you like, what you need, and just start thinking full-time the needs of others, what other people need. I mean, that is your job. Whatever privilege, whatever prerogative, whatever power, whatever opinion you think you're entitled to, give it up. Just give it up for somebody else. That's what Christ does. And the more and more you and I become like Jesus, that's more and more how we'll do. Focus on what you can do for others. Okay, now you're thinking, well, that, that, that sounds lame. And, and, and I get it. You know, you're thinking, I'm going to come in here now, and I've got to let everybody have their way. Lord, I'll never get my way again. You know, Lord, you know, they'll, you know they're, they'll tell them what they'll do down there, you know, now, if I'm not going to speak up. I, I get it. I, I really do. There is that feeling that, you know, if, if I just serve everybody else, they're just going to let me. Because that's how your family is, right? Like, if you want to clean up the dishes every night, they'll let you. I mean, they will, right? I mean, if you want to cook every night, if you want to do all the laundry from now till Jesus comes, your family will let you, you know? But we're not, we're not that kind of family. We're a supernatural family. That's not how it works here. Notice the amazing part about this passage. I said that you can draw it, and you can. Notice the movement, this downward mobility that it begins with. Though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up. Notice this downward mobility. He gave up his divine privilege. He didn't just give them up, y'all. He gave them up and became a, a man. He didn't just become a human being, man. He became a servant. Not just a servant to a certain point, but he served to the point of death. And not just any old death. He served to the point of death on a criminal's cross. He died a criminal's death. That's as low as you can go. That's as low as you can go. And that's the mind that's supposed to be in me and you, right? I mean, that's what it says. That's how we think. We go as low as we can go. Humble yourself, the scripture says. But you know what the scripture says? Every time it says humble yourself, it follows because there's this scriptural principle you need to know. God always answers humility with exaltation every time. So in the scripture, when it says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, what does it say next? And he will lift you up. 
Understand, you lower yourself, he will lift you up. And this is exactly what we see. Jesus dies on a criminal's cross. He dies the low, he takes the lowest position possible. Therefore, verse nine, what's it say? God elevated him, elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declared that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that? It starts with the glory of the Father and ends with the glory of the Father. Jesus lowers himself, he surrenders himself, but then God exalts him. And this is how it works. This is how it always works. You don't have to worry about, you know, just giving so much that you'll wind up empty. Because I'm telling you, you're always free to pour yourself out when you know that you'll always be filled. I don't have to worry about my needs getting met. I don't have to defend my needs. I don't have to make sure y'all know, you know, all about how I stand. No, no, no. I don't have to worry about any of that because the Lord is the one who takes care of me. He's the one who's going to lift me up. I'm going to humble myself. He will lift me up. I I don't have to wait for others. I don't need appreciation. I don't need any of that. I have everything from the Lord. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. You're always free to pour yourself out when you know you'll always be filled. Okay, so I'll be honest with you. Um, I've, I've been really excited to start these sermons, but this week I struggled with today. And I struggled this week about today's sermon because I spent most of my week with, with church family members who are hurting. A number of you are really struggling right now, and I know you're struggling. And I have wanted so much to, to be a good pastor with, with you in that. And so when, whenever I step in the pulpit, I, I feel that, and I want to have an encouraging word, and, and I want to preach hope and strength and victory and all of those things, but today I preach unity. And I worried that, you know, people would come in and they would just feel like, you know, that, that doesn't help me. You know, I'm broken, I'm hurting. That sermon doesn't help me. Understand something. Understand how this all works. When you have a need, when you're broken, you come into the body of Christ. The aim is not that the preacher will have the word that fixes you, that that the preacher will lift you up, that the preacher will encourage you. No, we're the body of Christ together. I'm one member of this body. My, My gift, my function is public, and I'm often in the spotlight, but it doesn't make me the most important. I'm not most important. In any given moment, we don't really rank who's important, who's not. What what matters is that we all come into this place with needs, but we all come into this place with a focus on other people's needs. So in your brokenness today and in in your heartache and and in your burdening, just understand that the best thing in the world for you is to come into church, come into the body of Christ, and focus on somebody else. Because you know what happens when I walk up in here and all I'm thinking about is my needs and my problem and I'm just hoping somebody will help me? If I walk in trying to, trying to get myself taken care of and then you walk in with the same attitude, you walk in just thinking about yourself and what you need other people to do for you and how broken you are. I mean, if we both walk in and all we focus on is ourselves and our brokenness and our need, understand, we'll come and we'll go and we'll do nothing for one another. 
but it's different. No matter how kind of, what kind of burden you're carrying, no matter how heavy your problems are, when you walk into the body of Christ with this attitude that I am going to, I'm going to do something for somebody else today. I'm going to give away whatever it is that I feel like I need. I need encouragement more than anything. So I'm going to walk up in that church and I'm going to be an encouragement to somebody else. I mean, you know, when you think like that, when you act like that, it changes everything. Because you know what happens? When I walk in here and all I'm thinking about is taking care of you, not worried about me, but thinking about you, and then you walk in and you're not thinking about you, you're just thinking about me, guess what happens? Somehow, supernaturally, we take care of each other. I didn't have to look out for myself. I didn't have to, you know, you know, try to make you feel guilty or go find me a church where people care about people. No, no, no. But when we just all begin to think like Jesus and live like Jesus and love like Jesus, it's just amazing how we all get taken care of. That's the power of Jesus. It's not going to work as long as we're selfish. Selfish is what keeps us from unity. Just have to stop thinking about yourself. I just say that's hard. That requires a total change of heart. And you don't have the power to change your heart. I don't either. That's God's power. God has to go to work in your heart. But isn't that what the scripture promises? He goes to work in me. He gives me the desire and also the power to change, to please him. And I just can't stop believing that. If he's at work in me and he's also at work in you, I think we should be able to work together. Not just working together. If, if his spirit is in you and the same spirit is in me, we're going to love each other. We will love each other. Jesus prayed for perfect unity. Let's pray.